I want to talk to you out of one verse this morning. It's in the book of Philippians, chapter 3. It's actually the first half of the verse, verse 10. Paul utters these words, I want to know Christ. Do you find anything strange about that? What do you find strange about that, Pat? Yeah, we should know him, right? You would presume at the time Paul writes this letter, he's well into his life and his ministry and so forth. In fact, he writes this letter toward the end of his life. Does he not already know Christ? And yet he says, I want to know Christ. How many of us could say with him, I want to know Christ? And I want to know him better. I want to know him more. I've tasted. I know how good the Lord is. I want more of him in my life. How many find themselves a little frustrated and stymied as to knowing him more and and getting more of him in your life and maybe how to do that or what's required and so forth, the dynamic of that? What does it mean to have more of Christ in my life? All of us, all of us are in relationships of varying sorts, aren't we? In varying intensities and so forth. And, and there are people in our life that, that we really do want them in our life more. Is that a fair statement? I want to know you more. I want to know what you think. I want to know your heart. I want to know your dreams. I want to know your passions. I want to know you. And, and it's not a selfish thing. It's just that it's just, there's this connection, if you will. Now, there are people in our life that we don't necessarily want to know more. Isn't that true? We know already enough. But I submit to you that, that, that Christ in our life is one of those people that when you, when you just you begin to catch a glimpse, when you begin to taste of his, of his goodness, your appetite is whetted for more, more of him. Not just what he does, not just his blessings, but to know him. Does this make sense? Are you relating to what I'm saying? We, in our, in our house, we, we, we're very kind of simple and, especially when I'm on my vacation and such, we don't go places. We don't, you know, take vacations and all that stuff. And we, we just like being together. And our, our schedule during the rest of the year is very, 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 very stressed, very difficult. We have to work very hard to be together. But uh, my wife will always say to me, she says, I just, I just love being with you. I just love being at home with you. I say, good. <laughs> but the point is, Paul says, I want to know Christ. And the question I want to pose this morning is, is that, is that you're the cry of your heart? Have you reached a place in your life Maybe where you're tired of perfunctory Christianity. Maybe you're, you're just going through the motions. Maybe you're not sure what's going on in, in, in this whole Jesus Christ thing. Maybe it's kind of a mystery to you. Can we boil it all down to say, you know what? I just want to know Christ. Well, that's what I want to talk to you about. Now, we've been looking and talking about this New, new Testament concept of Fellowship or koinonia and the, the, the various facets of koinonia that that one word represents to us. We've, we've been looking at that uh, for the past several weeks. More particularly, we've been looking at fellowship or koinonia with God. Critical, because koinonia with God is the very foundation, is the very basis of our koinonia or our fellowship with each other. We're not going to share together with each other in terms that we've been talking about in, in Koinonia, unless we're first sharing with God. And we're in Koinonia with God. Now, as I say that, I just want to remind you of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, when he tells the Corinthians, and by extension, he speaks to us, saying, God has called us into fellowship with Jesus Christ, His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's called us into fellowship. 
John echoes that same truth, if you will, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, when he says, he says, we, we want, he, he wants his readers, he wants his hearers to join, to enjoy fellowship with him, but he says our real fellowship is with who? The Father and his Son. In other words, there is, there is no real fellowship between us unless there's fellowship first with who? With God. And that fellowship comes through Jesus Christ. Uh, I had a conversation Friday afternoon with a woman who is Muslim. And uh, we were talking about this thing. And, and I say, and, and I know much about her background. She's from Afghanistan. And, uh, and I said to her, um, I said, are you, are, you, are you Muslim? Are you Christian or what? She says, I'm Muslim. I said, do you practice? She says, no. She says, you know, I, she's, you know, I said, oh, you're just like all the rest of the people. You know, you're just kind of nominal. She says, yeah. And uh, uh, I said to her, um, do you know anything about Jesus? She says, well, just, she's seen me on television. <laughs> and that, this is what prompted the conversation. And so um, as we were talking, she says, no. I said, would you like to know more about Jesus? If I brought you a Bible, would you read a Bible? She says, she says uh, well, I read the Quran. And I said, the Quran is, is, is not God's word. I said, did you know that in the whole Quran, not one time, not one time is the word love used? Not one time. I said, but that word is, is used throughout the entire Bible. We're told, God tells us through his Bible, that he loves us. And he wants to be in our lives. And, and you know, she just like this. So she's going to get a Bible. Persian Bible. Now, why did I tell you that story? <laughs> Fellowship. Yeah, I know, I know fellowship, I just... Uh... Oh, that's right, fellowship with God. Thank, thank you. <laughs> I had a reason for that. It just seemed so logical at the moment. But the point is, is, it is for us to have fellowship together, meaningful fellowship, it can only happen because we're in fellowship with God. Have you ever tried to fellowship with someone who's not a believer? And talk about the real issues of life. It's just kind of like this, isn't it? Yeah, you just can't make a connection. Oh, that's what it was. I was trying to make a connection. <laughs> anyway, you understand what I'm pointing? Now, as, as, as we've been sharing this last couple of weeks, this fellowship with God, this koinonia with God, includes an objective relationship and we'll define that as union with Christ. And it also includes an experiential relationship. And we'll define that as communion with Christ. The point being is that we must understand the reality of both the union and communion with Christ. A genuine relationship with God through Jesus Christ requires both. You must be united to him. It is our union with Christ. It is that objective fact that the Bible teaches us. It's not a feeling. It's the truth. It's the doctrine. It's our union with Christ. It's our being in Christ, as Paul uses that term. Jesus uses the analogy of the vine and the branches. Just as he's the vine and we're the branches, just as a, as a, as a, as a vine these branches receive their life. Uh, we are in Christ. And in, in Christ, uh, we are sharing his life. And in sharing his life, we share also his virtue, his goodness, his righteousness, his love, his peace, his joy. He says, I, he says, I want my joy to be made complete in you. We share his, his life, his virtue, and we share his power. It's his very power that makes all the difference in our life as a Christian. 
Not just simply as a human. Some people say, I don't see a difference between my life before, my life after. You know, I, I just do the same things. I walk the same, you know, I have the same. Yeah, but it's Christ's power that energizes us as Christians to live the Christian life. You couldn't live the Christian life prior to becoming a Christian, could you? The conversion is more than just an expression. What happens is a miracle. You're regenerated. You're born again. You're made a new creation. And God now lives in us by His Spirit. And we are in Him. What a miracle. What an awesome thing. And it's His power that we share. Isn't that glorious? So what does it mean to be in communion with God? We're going to talk about the experiential aspect of this relationship with God. We've been talking about the the objective union with Christ. Now we're going to talk about communion with him, the experiential aspect. Matthew Henry, a commentator, wrote a book entitled Directions for Daily Communion with God. It's out of print, as I understand. He has written three sections in that book. Number one, how to begin the day with God. Number two, how to spend the day with God. And number three, how to close the day with God. That kind of sums it all up, doesn't it? Now, those three elements, those three elements are essential to our communion with God. How do I begin my day with him? How do I spend my day with him? And how do I close my day with him? Just like in any substantial, any significant relationship with another person in your life that you count valuable, how you start your day, spend your day, and end your day with them is very, very important. Our communion should be more than just having a quiet time in the morning. I think you'd all agree with me, a quiet time is very important. Very important. And, and many, many of us have one. But our communion with him should go beyond that. It should be an all-day affair. Now, the word affair can be a loaded word, you know. But if I'm going to have an affair, I'm going to have an affair with Jesus. <laughs> Brother Lawrence wrote a book, a classic. Many of you read this, no doubt. The Practice of the Presence of God. Right, Annie? Remember that? And in that book, Brother Lawrence described how he enjoyed the presence of God as much amid the clatter of his pots and pans. Now, he was a monk, and he worked in a kitchen in a monastery. He enjoyed the presence of God amid the clatter of his pots and pans as much as he did enjoying the presence of God during the early morning chapel hours. Beloved, is this something you and I should aspire to, do you think? Living continually in the presence of God. Living, now notice what I said, living continually in the presence of God. Does that present a dilemma to anybody? Now, objectively, according to the truth, we do live in the presence of God. We live according to His power in us. I can't live without Him. But the flip side of that coin is the experiential part of the relationship. I know my wife loves me. She can tell me all day long she loves me. She can write me notes, say, I love you, I love you, I love you. That's kind of the objective aspect of it. But how much better when she expresses that love? (laughs) Kind of adds something, right? Completes the relationship. Am I making sense? Am I just up here babbling, dear? Living continually in the presence of God. How do I do that? How do I do that when I'm so busy all day? How do I do that when I'm at work, concentrating and focused on all the issues I have to focus on? How do I do that if I'm a student in school, concentrating what the teachers are telling me? How do I do that in the midst of all the busyness and all the activity of my day? How can I think about having communion with God when I'm busy and have to think about what I'm doing? Is there a dilemma there? Well, the only way I know how to address that dilemma is by asking this question. 
And we're going to explore this. What is the thrust? What's the major thrust of my mind and heart? What's the major thrust of my mind and heart? In other words, what do I think about when I do have discretionary time? Because when I have discretionary time, my mind automatically goes to those things I'm passionate about, doesn't it? Normally, typically. The things I want to think about. I have my list of priorities, and, and, and the things that are high on my list of priorities, those are things I typically want to think about when I have discretionary time. So what do I do when I, example, for example, what do I do when I get in the car after a busy day? What do we typically do? Turn the radio on, or the CD, or the iPod, or the whatever nano thing, and the gizmos, and all the stuff that you can plug into all the stuff. I turn on the radio. Or, now, would you, just, would you define that as discretionary time? Could I define that as discretionary time? What if I got in the car and I didn't turn on the radio? What if I got in the car and I used that time simply to have communion with God? Now, I'm not saying not to listen to the car radio or your CDs or whatever. Uh, but what I am uh, saying is, how do we use our discretionary thinking time. Discretionary thinking time. And we all have lots of it. Dallas Willard wrote in a book, uh, his book, In the Search of Guidance. Great writer. If you ever read, if you get a chance to read anything by Dallas Willard, it's worth doing. He asked this question. Does our mind spontaneously return to God when not intensely occupied as the needle of a compass turns to the North Pole when removed from nearer magnetic sources. We all know how a compass works, right? Automatically, a compass points where? North, to the North Pole, right? But you get near a, ma- a magnetic source, and the compass points to the stronger magnetic source. So you remove the, ma- the, 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 the compass from that source, and what happens? The needle returns. So... The analogy, obviously, is where does our mind go when we're intensely occupied in something and we back away from that so we have some discretionary time? Where does my mind go automatically, spontaneously? Does it go to God or does it go someplace else? If we're serious about communion with God, this is critical. If we are serious about communion with God, then we must honestly face that question. Can't ignore it. Where, 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 where does my mind go? I think we'd all agree that the morning quiet time can be and is indeed foundational for our life that day, for, for in essence, an all-day communion. Because it, it, it literally turns our hearts. It literally orients us towards God right at the beginning of the day. When you spend time with Him in the morning, and you, and you pray, you read, Whatever your devotional time is, uh, your, 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 your focus, you're oriented towards him. Presumably, it sets you on a path for the day. David wrote in Psalm 5, verse 3, Morning by morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. Morning by morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. Morning by morning, I lay my request before you. Now notice this. And wait in expectation. I think those last three words imply the fact of an all-day communion with God. Mark records in his gospel in chapter 1, verse 35, regarding Jesus. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. I think it is fair to say that the morning is a time when we can focus and give undivided attention to his word and to talk to him in prayer. David exemplifies that. Jesus himself exemplifies it. I think it's significant that Jesus, the only person to ever experience unhindered relationship with his father. I think it's significant that Jesus thought it important to begin his day in prayer. 
if he felt the need of it, how much more should we? Lord, I want to start my day. I want to start my day with you. I want, to, I want you to be the very first person I say good morning to. I want to acknowledge you very first thing in the morning. And I want to commit my way to you today. And Lord, I have all these requests. You know all about them. But I just want to say to you, good morning, good morning, good morning. It's nice to be up this morning <laughs> compared to the alternative. Psalm 27, verse 8. David says, my heart says of you, seek his face. Or another variation of that translation. To you, O my heart, he has said, seek my face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Now, seeking his face suggests something. I think it suggests an intensity of mind and heart that is usually possible only during our time alone with him. I can't seek his face if I'm distracted. It requires a a time of, of intensity of mind and heart. I'm focused. And again, I, I want to suggest the morning uh, time is especially suitable for seeking his face. And the more that becomes uh, a regular uh, expression of our life, I think the more, the, the greater the, the follow through and the commitment on that will be. Uh, and I believe it's this intense, organized prayer alone with God in the morning that prepares us for the rest of the day. And more particularly, prayers prepares us for those quick prayers, those momentary prayers, those instantaneous prayers that we find so necessary throughout the day. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Right? We're, we're, we're facing something, so we throw up a quickie prayer. Anybody pray quickie prayers? I think in your notes I wrote a little space, what are some of your quickie prayers, right? But I think that the quickie prayer, there's a foundation for that, and that foundation is the morning time. If I can ask you to turn back to the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, I want you to see uh, some verses here. Nehemiah chapter 1. Look at the first four verses. Page 490. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. It's right in that ballpark. Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days... I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then you can read his prayer on your own. I just want to call your attention to verse 4. Nehemiah, upon hearing the condition of the walls of Jerusalem, he says, verse 4 records, that for some days I mourned, fasted, and prayed before the Lord. So he spent some time in prayer, sought the Lord, and as he prayed, we find that God does answer his prayers, and he does so in that in the, one day as he appears before the king, the king grants his desire. He asks the king if it's okay to go back to Jerusalem and, and, and build the walls again. Look at chapter 2 with me. Verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? And then I 
prayed. And I answered the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Now, I don't know, but I have such an appreciation for that whole section. See, when the, when the king asked him, what, what, what do you want? What do you need? And Nehemiah told him what he wanted. Notice, just before he tells him, he throws up a quickie prayer. Now, if you're cynical, you could say, well, you know, the king probably will let him go anyway. You know, it's no, the fact that he sent up that quickie prayer is a, is a sign that he's acknowledging God in all of his ways. But I also want to submit to you that that prayer was based on days of fasting and prayer prior to. So if I can draw the analogy, our morning time with God sets the stage, the foundation for our daily quickie prayers. Does that seem to make sense to anybody? Now, if I'm not praying in the morning, if I'm not orienting myself towards him, if there's not a certain intensity of my mind and heart seeking him in the morning, chances are there will be no quickie prayers during the day. I'll continue to lean on my own understanding. And I won't even be thinking about acknowledging him in all my ways. I believe there's a connection there. It was those days of praying alone with God that made that quick, silent prayer effective. And our quickie prayers are necessary throughout the day, acknowledging him in all of our ways, but they must be founded on a more, much more substantive time with him. And again, I submit to that time would be our morning time with him. And although that morning time with God should be or should lay the foundation for our communion with him, that communion should not stop at the end of our morning time. It should be all day long. Our entire day, think about this, our entire day should be spent in devotion to Him. Our entire day should be spent in dependence on Him. Our entire day should be spent in delighting in Him. And our entire day should be spent in an attitude of doing all that is necessary to please Him. Notice, please, the use of alliteration. D, 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 D. Would you agree? Again, if, you, if we go back to that Psalm 5 that we, that we noted earlier, David said he waited on God morning by morning. And he also waited on him throughout the course of the day. I wait in expectation. It wasn't just a mindless prayer he threw up in the morning and then he forgot all about it. No, he was communing with God all day, dependent on him, devoted to him. And no doubt, as we shall see in a few moments, delighting in him and seeking to do his will. Psalm 25, verse 5. David says, For you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you. Now notice these words. Say them with me. All day long. All day. Now the question is, now we can say that based on what we understand. We're in Christ and and he'll never leave us and forsake us and, and the objective truth and reality of that. But do you experience, do you have the confidence that he is your hope all day long? The comfort that derives from that truth. You are my comfort. All Is your relationship with him such that, that you're growing more and more intimate with him so that you know him more? Not just know about him, not just know the truth about him, but you know him. There is an experiential element to this, I believe. To hope in God, to wait on God, as David says is simply an expression of dependence on Him. It's an expression of dependence. It's, if you will, it's the Old Testament equivalent 
of remaining in Christ or abiding in Christ as Jesus says, recorded in John chapter 15 with respect to the vine and the branches. Jesus says, if you remain in me, if you abide in me, if I remain in you. What does that mean? It means, it means that I'm dependent on him. Just as those branches are dependent on that vine, if they're cut off from that vine, there is no hope for them. Isn't that true? They're, they're just suitable to be bundled up and burned in the fire. Firewood. And this attitude of dependence must be practiced all day long, not just at moments of need or crisis as they arise. If it is really true that we can do nothing without him, if that's really true, then the habit of depending on him only at irregularly occurring pressure points during the day leaves much of our lives a great big goose egg. Zero. And many of us understand what that means. There doesn't seem to be any power there. Our prayers seem to be just bouncing off the ceiling. And it's just, you know, what's the use? I can't go on another day. Why? Because there's no foundation there in terms of your relationship with Him. We need to develop... Now, look at the words I'm using. We need to develop the practice of waiting on God, as David did all day long. Only then will we bear much fruit. Why? Because utterly, God, I can't do anything with you. I've got to be with you. I've got to spend time with you. I've got to acknowledge you in all my ways. And along with an attitude of waiting on God all day long, we need also to learn to walk with Him all day long. These are almost synonymous, but there's there's still a a subtle difference between them. How many remember Enoch? Go back to Genesis chapter 5. We're introduced to Enoch. In in Enoch, it's spoken of Enoch in verse 22 and verse 24 of Genesis 5. Enoch is characterized by this one phrase. What's the phrase? He walked with God. Now, the writer of Hebrews, if you go over to the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11 of Hebrews, you know, the great hall of fame of the faith people, Enoch is mentioned there. Verse 5, Enoch is mentioned there. And the writer of Hebrews comments on Enoch, comments on his walk. He walked with God. Now, what does the writer of Hebrews say about Enoch? B. He what? He pleased God. Now, see if you can make the connection with me. Walking with God signifies a continual communion with Him and a life that is pleasing to Him. That's why Paul says in in Galatians, walk after the Spirit. If you walk after the Spirit, you won't fulfill the desires of the sinful nature, and you will bear fruit. Walk with God, and you'll live a life that's pleasing to God. It's not rocket science, is it? It's exciting, isn't it? A life that is well-pleasing to God results from continual communion with Him. Oh, it's a very simple. See, the one flows out of the other. It's a logical thing. Now, there's another, yet another reason to enjoy communion with God all day long. To find our delight in Him. Psalm 63, verse 3. David said, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Because your love is better than life. Nothing compares to your love. Love implies relationship, doesn't it? Is it possible? Is it possible that the ultimate purpose of continual communion with God is simply to enjoy Him? The ultimate purpose 
is to enjoy him. Right, Deb? Most of us, I think in a fair say, do not experience this continuing communion and corresponding delight in God. We read about it, we hear about it, we want it. Some, tragically, don't even really truly long for it. They've given up a long time ago. Many Christians today are content simply to use God. And we couch it in religious language. Oh, Lord. But now. Now, obviously, it's an exaggeration, but for some, not necessarily. I mean... We talked last time. We, we, we need his enabling power, don't we? In our, in our jobs, in our relationships, our studies, our marriages, even our ministries. There are all sorts of legitimate needs, and we certainly need his enabling power in all of them. But I submit to you that God is pleased when we find our delight in him alone. I mean, you, mean you, you just want me? You just want me? We had dinner over at Randy and Nadine Cooper's house a month or so ago. And, and, and they're just bragging on each other. You know how people do that when the pastor comes. <laughs> oh, I mean, it was just wonderful. Yeah, it just, we, just, we just caught the sense that, that they, they just so enjoyed each other. And he, I just was sitting there marveling. I didn't say that to you guys, but I'm going to brag on you. It was just, it was just wonderful to see that. Now, their marriage hasn't always been one harmonious union. But, but God has done a marvelous thing. And they, and they just simply enjoy one another. I'm forever telling husbands, learn how to enjoy your wife. Accent on the word learn. (laughs) Learn how to enjoy her. Oh, man. You think that it's just a... (laughs) I enjoy my bride. We'll be sitting there watching television or just, you know, just... She's in the kitchen. I'm just sitting and listening. And I'm just musing about her. And I start to laugh to myself. And she says, what are you laughing at? I said, you. <laughs> I too, I too need to be reminded to enjoy my wife. Learn to enjoy. Learn to get past the things that, you know, that rankle you guys. Stuff that you just go... <laughs> To the moon, Alice. To the moon. (laughs) God is pleased when we find our delight in Him alone. And to those who sincerely delight in Him, not just in His blessings, He promises this. Delight yourself in me, and I will give you the desires of your heart. That beautiful. Delight yourself in me. Our prayer, I, I submit to you, our prayer should be that God will enable us to so commune with Him throughout the day that we will truly find our delight in Him. This is, I think, the thrust of Paul's comment. I want to know Christ. How do I get there? I want to delight in Him. How do I get there? How do I practice this communion with God throughout the day so I can get there? If the morning time is our foundation for our communion with God, then I submit to you that scripture, meditation, and prayer are the framework for our communion with God. All of us are familiar with building a house. You've got to have a strong foundation, right? 
And upon that foundation, you build the structure. You build the framework. And then on the framework, you hang all the beautiful stuff. Those two things are essential. If the foundation is the morning time, then the framework are scripture, meditation, and prayer. Joshua, chapter 1, verse 8. There's a command of God to Joshua. He says, meditate on these scriptures, meditate on my word. How often? Day and night. In Psalm 1, verse 2, this commendation speaks of the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And most of you know Psalm 1 gives a picture of a, of a, of a man that's, his life is rich and blessed and full, and uh, he just he bears fruit in season, his leaf does not wither, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. It's a beautiful picture. But it all emanates from the fact that he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, he doesn't go the way of the world. He doesn't listen to the wisdom of men. Rather, he delights in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night. So we have both a command and a commending this meditation on the word of God both day and night. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says this. Pray how often? Continually. Pray continually. Now, truly, if the truth be known, few Christians take these instructions seriously. And why is that? Well, because we basically see them as impractical. It presents a dilemma to me. How? How? I'm so busy. How can I be meditating on the Scriptures day and night? How can I pray continually when I've got a job, when I've got to take care of this, when I've got that in front of me, when I'm... So people don't do it. It can't be done. I'm here to tell you it can be done. But it takes serious commitment and it takes discipline. Ooh, there's that word again. If you're going to practice true communion with God all day long, it takes serious commitment and discipline. Remember, we can do most things because he gives us the strength. Yeah, we do all things. I have no excuse. If I really believe what he says, then I should be able to do this because he's going to give me the strength to do it. And it all begins with scripture memorization. Now note this, very, very important. Pay attention. We can meditate on God's word. We can think about it. To meditate means to think about it, to reflect on it. We can do that throughout the entire day only if we have it where? In our minds, or poetically, in our hearts. The psalm says, I've hidden your word in my heart, and so, but the, the idea is that it's in our mind. And we have scripture in our minds only if we have made the effort to just plain memorize it. Beloved, there is no shortcut to meditation that bypasses scripture memorization. Just gotta grind them out. Just gotta memorize them. But assuming we have begun to memorize Scripture, how then do we use it to have communion with God? Well, we need to develop the habit throughout the day of continually turning our minds. Remember like that compass? Turning our minds to the Word of God, reflecting on it each time opportunity permits. It's a habit. Okay, I'm not going to turn on my car radio. I'm just going to, I'm, I'm memorizing this verse. Now, most of us know what this is like because we've been in discipleship and we've, at various points in our life, we've been memorizing passages of Scripture. And so we use those downtimes to rehearse the Scriptures, especially if you're on your way to a meeting with me and, and you've been <laughs> assigned a verse to memorize, right? <laughs> so every, every time we can choose... Every time we can choose what we will think about, we choose to think about the Word of God. Just pick a verse. Philippians 4.13. Imagine just meditating on that verse, thinking about it, rehearsing it, meditating on it, reflecting on it for a week. Just one verse for a week. Might that affect your life in a positive way? 
I believe it would. It has mine. But we don't just think about the bare words of the Scripture. We think beyond the words to the God of the Scripture. This is very, very important. When you're meditating, you think about the words, but you, at some point you've got to get beyond just the bare words to the God, the one who is talking to you through those very words. What's he saying to me? And as you listen to him speak to you through that meditation on that particular scripture, you can then speak back to him, acknowledging what he is saying to you when we have conversation with one another. One of the key, key principles of communication is to what? Listen. And then feed back to that other person what they've told you. Now, let me, I want to make sure I got this right. Now, you're, you, you just said... It's the same thing. You just talk back God. So, okay, God, I think this, I think this is what you're telling me. I think this is what this verse is saying. And then as you do that, you can respond appropriately by either thanking him, by praising him, by responding to his will, or by confessing your failure to respond to his will, knowing that there's no condemnation. God, I failed. I failed. Thank you, you don't condemn me. But whatever response to a particular scripture is appropriate for us at a given time should then become the subject of immediate prayer along with our meditation. So now you're praying, you're learning to pray continually. Because now you've been meditating on the verse. That verse and and what what you are, are learning can be a subject of prayer. Does that make sense? And as we go through the day, we find these discretionary thinking times. We do that. But the, the, again, remember, it's the main thrust of our heart and mind. What's the main thrust of my heart and mind? It's always back to God. When I have an opportunity, I'm, I'm back to God. I'm back to meditating on His Word. I'm back to praying. I'm, I'm back to getting to know Him more. Now, and to, to pray continually also, no doubt, would include other things needs, ours, friends, relatives, the church. There's a continual need for guidance, wisdom, strength, isn't that true? And there are problems, certain problems, certain situations we face that can resolve, be resolved only by God. And we continually bring those before Him. But all these matters are valid subjects for our communion with God throughout the day. But in all of this, it's important that we remember. All of this, it's important that we remember this. Let's not just conduct business with God. Let's not just conduct business with God. We want to take the time simply to learn how to enjoy Him and enjoy His enjoying us. Can you imagine God enjoys you? (laughs) I can barely stand myself. I can't imagine how God can enjoy me. Any relationship, any relationship, whether it be a marriage, a friendship, any kind of relationship you can think of, parent-child, employer-employee, any kind of relationship you can think of, would soon degenerate if it is simply built on conducting business. People must truly like one another. People must truly enjoy. Well, this is why I tell husbands, learn to enjoy your wife. Learn to like your wife. Because if you don't, you're not going to be able to maintain any kind of relationship. It's not, you're not just doing business. And the same is true with our relationship with God. We must get beyond this idea of just conducting business with God, and we must somehow further establish the reality of this relationship we have, this father-child relationship that he's called us into. Our emphasis much of the time is on doing things for God. Our emphasis much of the time is on believing right doctrines about God. That's not a bad thing. Those are good things. Those are true and necessary and right things. But how many of us take time to commune with him? How many of us take time to just simply desire to enjoy Him.
delight in Him. Not just what He can do, just delight in Him and adore Him. In the church today, there seems to be very little of that thirst for God described by David in Psalm 42, verse 1. Very convicting verse. As the deer pants for streams of waters, so my soul pants for you, O God. We sing that hymn, don't we? We sing that psalm. And I confess to you, every time we've sung that, I, I just get so convicted. God, I, 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 I'm sorry. I, I can't get there. I, I'm not there. I'm, my soul doesn't pant for you. So I leave you with these two questions. Can we, can we say with David, my soul pants for you? Can we say with Paul, I want to know Christ? Can we aspire to those things, church? Amen? Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you again for reminding us and calling us back to a relationship with you. Lord, we know what your word says, that you've given us new life, new birth. But Lord, it's not just an objective, rational, logical principle and truth. You want us to experience that life with you. You want us to experience your goodness and enjoy you and to know your power. And that our lives be evident that they are truly transformed lives to the rest of the world so people can see that you make all the difference. Lord, help us understand what it means to know you, to commune with you all day long. Give us a fresh new vision. And Lord, confidence that your enabling grace is there if we would just but take a step of faith. We love you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen, church? Amen. Turn to your neighbor. Tell your neighbor one thing that you got out of this message this morning. One thing that's uppermost in your mind. Share that right now, and then we'll close with some singing.